Hello and welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Guy Smith wants to make New Haven and Connecticut tick. He's seeking the Democratic nomination for governor. That's right. Another one coming to the office to tell us what it's all about. He's here in the WNHU studio to tell us who he is and what he's going to do for our state. Guy Smith, thank you for making it to New Haven, and it's very nice to meet you. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Hello, Connecticut. All right. We hear that We hear that Southern accent, but you've been here 35 years. 35 said, right? years. That's right. So what happens that accent? It's like, my, I guess, some people's Brooklyn accents. They just never go, huh? <laughs> well, you know, my grandmother, well, one of my grandmothers was from Brooklyn, and... Uh, so I've got some roots in the... Uh, Where my grandfather was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What part of Brooklyn? Atlantic Avenue. Okay, is that in Bensonhurst? And Decatur Street, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. all right. Well, anyway, give us the elevator pitch, Guy Smith, because a lot of people are running for governor. I think there are more than two dozen people, by my count, at least 21 are actually showing up places and raising money. Two major parties, plus an independent, Oz Griebel. Why Guy Smith? I am not a career politician. And I'm not a career candidate. And, you know, everywhere I go in this state, and you say Hartford, people groan. And they're, they're just fed up with everything, government as it has been, the government that's not working, government leaders that don't talk to each other. I've, um, I've spent the last, you know, several decades as a senior officer of two global corporations I ran AmeriCare's the disaster relief humanitarian uh, or operation down in uh, in uh, Stanford, and I worked at the White House for President Bill Clinton, and um, directly for him at the White House. So I have a set of experiences that have always involved government and politics, involved business, involved humanitarian activity. Early, excuse me, early in my career, I actually helped run a city larger than New Haven, Knoxville, Tennessee. So I know how to get a street paved without being shortchanged. <laughs> and, um, and, um, so Guy Smith, you're not the only one who's running saying I'm not a career politician. You, you made a good point before you on the air that on the Democratic side, in fact, there are people who hold office. It's become almost like a dirty word if you've been office, you know, even if, you might. Some people might argue that holding office. Are you having trouble hearing, guy? Or That's, I'm getting all kinds of feedback. All right, let me pull it down. Sorry. Loud music. Try it now. Try it now. Okay. Still there. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, sorry about that. So uh, very hard to hear you. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of candidates are saying I'm not a career politician, at least on the on the Republican side, and Oz Griebel on the Independent side. What about the positive? Okay, you're not someone who's been in government outside of getting streets paved in Knoxville. What have you done that makes you someone who can actually run a state? Well, I, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. It's just it's unbelievable sound coming into oh, my I'm sorry about headset. that, Harry. Fixing that up. It, it's I'm getting echoes and I'm getting. Uh, Do you want to try one of the other headphones? We're sorry about yeah, that, guy. Let me sure. let me. Uh, uh, we got Harry Jones, our station manager here. Is that any better? You're still getting noises. Okay, we'll try. You trying it without the try one more time? How's that? There you go. All okay. right, we got right. it fixed. Okay, now okay. we got this fixed. You're gonna tell us how you're gonna <laughs> fix Connecticut. So, Guy Smith, you like a lot of people are saying I haven't been a career politician. I haven't been a career candidate. You say you have been in the private sector. You've run two companies: one humanitarian, which is Americare, and one for-profit, Diageo in North America, 
which I just learned from you is the largest liquor distributor in the world, right. doing brands like Smirnoff and Johnny Walker. You're saying you feel like these mix of experiences give you a leg up. But what makes you, I mean, in a field of 21 serious candidates, quote unquote, at least people raising money and getting out there and meeting people, and a bunch of them saying the same thing you're saying about what they're not. What are you that sets you from, apart from the field? I know how to get things done. I know how to talk to people and bring people together. And, and I'm not a politician that's going to give you a weather report. Everybody knows how bad things are. And I'm a Democrat, and I'm running for the Democratic nomination. We'll deal with the Republicans later. They're causing enough harm, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, <clears throat> here's the deal. I'm a Democrat. I believe in Democrat values, but I'm not going to raise taxes. Hear me, Connecticut. I am not going to raise taxes. The other thing in a Smith administration is that unions, teachers, state workers are not going to be the enemy. I'm tired of having them demonized. I will not abrogate contracts like the CPAC contract, the teachers' collective bargaining, firefighters' collective bargaining. Not going to do that. We're not going to run the state that way. This state was built on union labor. You know, Paul, in Connecticut, we have the most educated workforce of any uh, state in the union. Any state. Maybe we ought to give the teachers a little bit of credit for that. There's a reason. We have to bring in more jobs. And uh, all politicians say that. I have some very specific things that uh, that we can talk about over the next uh you know, 45 minutes. We got it. In which, um, in, in, in specific ways to do that. I am missing that specific guy because everyone who comes on the show says, I don't want to raise taxes or I won't raise taxes. Yeah, I know. They Every say, Democrat that's right. says they, say gonna, they don't want to. I'm telling you, I'm not going to. Right, they're not going to bash unions or blame teachers if they're Democrats. But a lot of smart people have spent the last eight years trying to figure out how to stop this budget from continually erupting into billion dollar deficits that's right we have after we, we think we've settled it so obviously we have a major problem in terms of predictability of our revenues we're not bringing in enough money to run government so how if you're not going to go back on labor contracts if you're not going to raise taxes how in the world are you going to close budget deficits that have been as big as 2.5 billion dollars well, at any point in a year you know uh, <clears throat> before we went on the air I, I said that everywhere i go around the state when you say hartford and people just groan Mm-hmm. When the, the answer to your question is, we have to bring some fresh thinking into how we look at government, how we manage government. It's unconscionable that you, you go up to Hartford and the, the governor of the state and the leadership of the legislature won't even sit in the same room and talk to each other, not about changing the name of Elm Street out here in front of the building, but about the budget, about important things. I don't, I don't mean they, they argue with each other. They won't even talk to each other. You can't run a state government that way. It's just not... Possible. So when you're in the room, what are you going to say that hasn't been said specifically about decisions government can make that haven't been making that would pay the bills without raising taxes? Well, all right, let's talk about tolls because that's mm-hmm. a, that is a specific answer to your question. Tolls annoy people. I'm not going to run a government that annoys people. <laughs> and uh, they all, oh, well, we got to have tolls. And every single Democrat candidate of all, and they're all wonderful people, Every single one of them says, oh, I'm for tolls. Mm-hmm. And two or three of them will say, oh, it's $800 million that it'll raise. Yeah, it's $800 million that everybody listening to this show. Well, there's a way to do this without people in Connecticut having to pay the tolls, but other people 
not paying the tolls. Electronic tolls that don't yeah. take the license plates from... Well, the electronic tolls is the way you keep the records. But here's, here's how this would work. Everybody in the state gets a debit card, whether you have a DMV license or you pay state income tax. At the end of the year, MasterCard or Visa, whoever the issuer is, you pay your tolls all year long uh, with this debit card, and at the end of the year, you've paid $376 of tolls. So here's what happens. The Visa or MasterCard company rolls that up, files it with the Department of Revenue Services in your tax account, and it says you paid $376 in tolls last year. So you can make it tax deductible. No, not tax deductible. Tax credit. Okay. Now, what that means is when you file your state tax return, that's $376 reduced from your Mm -hmm. tax bill. But all these uh, people from New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts and Wyoming and wherever else driving through the state are paying. Now, people say, oh, you can't do that. Uh, It's against the law. And, And it violates the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Well, it doesn't. Here's how it works, and, it, and that's an important component of this is not what, it's how. If you live on Staten Island in New York and you go across the Verrazano every day, you pay a dramatically less toll than if you or I go across the Verrazano. Same at the other end of the state. In Jamestown, Rhode Island, if you go across the Newport Bridge, you get a, you get a big discount. So I'm talking about basically an electronic version of that so that the taxpayer in Connecticut doesn't have to do anything. They don't have to do anything. You don't have to keep little sheets of paper about I paid, you know, four dollars on a toll on Thursday. You don't have to do that. It's all going to be done for you. And and then here's what happens is that the tolls are being paid by people that are using our roads who aren't already paying taxes. People in Connecticut are already paying for roads with the regular taxes. Now there's one other component of this, Paul, that's really important. Up in Hartford, they're saying, oh, we've got to raise the gasoline tax because we're out of money. Well, that isn't how you do it. Here's how you do it. Everybody that's listening has been on I-95. Lots of big 18-wheelers, right? <clears throat> the companies that own those big trucks tell their drivers, you cannot buy gas in the state of Connecticut. You've got to buy it somewhere else because it's too expensive in Connecticut. You're saying lower. This is what Jonathan Harris said when he came in. Lower, if you're going to raise yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Jonathan started tolls. saying that after he heard me say it. <laughs> and, and, and here's here's how this works so that everybody understands. You lower the gas tax, those same trucking companies will tell their drivers, you must buy gas in the state of Connecticut. What, what's going to stop Massachusetts and New York from doing the same, just going lower than us? Well, okay. Let's, uh, let's so the race it. to the bottom. You know? In the end, nobody gets the money. Yeah. I mean, let's see if Massachusetts lowers the tax. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're, this is one of you asked me specifically. Yeah, that's These good. Are the kind now, of Guy, things. you also said you had a couple of specifics about how to bring new business to the yeah, state. Right. What, what were some of those thoughts? All right. There are a couple of things that I think are particularly important. And um, uh, let me talk about it an infrastructure bank first. Here's how this might work. Right now, say the Elm Street Tool and Die Company has been around 25 years. They have 25 employees. The owners are 63, husband and wife, thinking about retirement. But they need $400,000 to buy some new uh, machinery to keep making this part for a Sikorsky helicopter that they, that they have a contract for. They go to the bank, and the bank says, sure, we'll loan you $400,000, but it's got to be a personal note. And they say, whoa, hello, we're thinking about our retirement, and they don't do it. They lose the Sikorsky contract. 
Instead of 25 employees, they have 13, and we've just dug the hole deeper. Now, okay, what are you going to do to fix that? You put together 1,000 Elm Street tool and die companies across the state, spread the risk, you work with the bank, and then you underpin the whole thing with the credit of the state of Connecticut. Now, everything I have just said does not cost the taxpayer who's listening to this you show right now 10 cents. But what it does, it, it creates more access to capital for thousands or hundreds and, or thousands of companies across Connecticut who then will not lose the contract. They'll buy that new equipment. They'll hire new employees. And, and then we haven't spent any of the state's money, but what we're doing is we're bringing people into the state into real jobs who then are paying taxes, mm-hmm. which then brings in, you know, for, then we need to hire more teachers, get more teachers paying into the pension fund. You take the pressure off of the pension. All of these are linked. Here's another example. Right now, you talk to people who have college students who are going to college outside of, the, of Connecticut. Oh, they won't come home. Even one of my competitive candidates says that their, one of their children who live in New York City won't come to Connecticut. All right, so what do you do? Right now, say IBM, you know, they recruit on college campuses. They go to Ohio State. Come to work for IBM. We're a great company. The state of Connecticut needs to do that across the country. And now, but we don't need to do it with a brochure. What we need to do is we recruit millennials and people coming out of college. You come to Connecticut and you get a first-time home buyer credit. Or if you live in Connecticut and you never owned a home, you get a first-time home buyer credit. That's an anchor. Now, what else? So everybody on this call that drives around the state of, uh, of Connecticut, think about all the empty buildings you see. Wherever you go in the state, there are empty buildings everywhere. Some of them owned by the state. And some of them have been there as long as some of the candidates that are running for office have been running for other offices. So here's what we do. You, you fix those buildings. You put Internet access in them. Just think Silicon Valley. Think Route 128 up in Boston. And then you say to those millennials, not only when you come to Connecticut, you get a home buyer credit. If you do your startup here, We'll give you free office space for up to five employees for two years. Another anchor. What happens then is you create tax-paying jobs, people that are paying taxes. They're anchored in the community. You put them in, especially into the urban areas, which creates more anchors, more growth. These are the kinds of things that are absolutely essential. Now, those two things that I just talked about, take it to the inner city. We need to do microfinancing in the inner city. Example, somebody that lives in an urban area wants to create a dry cleaners or a corner store. They need, they need $25,000 of capital to get going. They go to a bank. The bank won't even open the door for them. The only kind of capital they've got is their car loan. The bank comes smoke about the car loan. Take the same concept. You put 100 or 1,000 of these kind of folks together. You work with the bank, and then again, you underpin it with the credit of the state of Connecticut. You create no risk for the state of Connecticut, but you're using in a modern- Why is it no risk if the state's backing the loans and the loans get repaid, don't get repaid? Although you're right, microfinancing uh, programs have shown to have high repayment. But if yeah, well, they weren't repaid- Okay, so no risk. So, you know, the, the de minimis risk. Mm-hmm. And, so state and it, guaranteed and it, and private micro loans to start businesses. Well, I don't know if guarantee is the right word. You have to work with a consortium. But if, if, you're, if it helps the bank feel better about doing, doing the whole process, if they know the state's behind them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, banks are skittish. 
understandably, after, you know, 2008. And we've got banks that are headquartered here in Connecticut we can do this with. This is an example. It's just an example of two or three things. We need to be have three or 400 or 500 of these kind of things all happening simultaneously. We need to recruit people back into the state. And another important component that's a specific, you asked me for specifics, our vote tech system in the state's pretty good, but it isn't in all the right places, and there isn't enough of it. And the, the, the guys over in Hartford have been taking money away from the vote tech system. We need to put money back in. But where's the money going to come from? I'm so you glad said it you tells, asked okay. me that. You keep asking me that. I'm going to give you an answer. Here's the answer to that. Maybe we just build one less fancy building at UConn. I don't mean stop doing the, the engineering Although program. we bond for those buildings. Votech money tends yeah, to come out of right. the general We're, operating funds. We do bond. Well, there's no rule against bonding for a Votech school. Okay. And what we need to do on our bonding is look at our bonding capability. Mm. You know, let's think about, you know, bonds is another thing that people talk about. But the real part of the big cost for Votech is actually running the schools, having people hired to... Yeah. I'm not arguing with the case about expanding Votech. I'm just saying that if you bond to build a Votech school, that's still not going to pay for having someone actually run the school. That's right. And, and, and but we have, we have, you know, what we've got to do, we have to work with the, the companies that need these jobs. There's, mm-hmm. what are the 13 or 14,000 available jobs right now in Connecticut? We don't have the trained workforce that we need. So you and think they can pitch in? We to... need to, well, some of those we need to import back to what I was saying earlier about, yeah. you know, bringing people into the state and, and they will come to the state if they get an atmosphere where they are, are, are welcomed, welcomed economically, welcomed, you know, in terms of a good, of a good job. And Connecticut is, is a great place to live. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, you hear this, the Republicans particularly, but even some of the Democrats are saying, oh, Connecticut's such a mess. Well, it's not a mess. The reality is, yes, we have f- fiscal problems. We have enormous fiscal resources. And you, you keep asking me how. The how is we're going to look at things differently. We're going to do things differently. And by differently, I don't mean I'm abrogating a union contract. We're not doing that. And we're not raising people's taxes. People pay enough taxes. And we are telling them why Guy Smith is running for the Democratic nomination for governor. That's right. And I am a traditional Democrat. I believe in a $15 minimum wage. I believe in women's reproductive rights. I believe that, that, you know, uh, uh, we've got to control this gun stuff that's going on you know i mean right now the republicans in the, the white house they 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 have their solution is to make schools safe for guns <laughs> by arming teachers and and not make schools safe for kids what would you do we've already passed some gun control laws that are looked at as models for well connecticut is one of the nation nation's leaders, leaders yeah. you know and, and god bless everybody including republicans in the legislature that voted for that you got some republican uh, gubernatorial candidates well, uh, anything are, next you would do well we need to yeah well there's the in in our legislature here in connecticut bump there's the guns. bump stock in the ghost gun legislation and and uh, you know we're hopeful and i certainly support, so you support those yeah. that uh, that will do those uh, writ larger nationally we need to strengthen the, um, especially the background checks, and um, you know they're, they're a little bit of a joke, and and we need to, to strengthen that. We need to further empower law enforcement. When an example, of course, sadly, of, out of Florida, uh, where so law enforcement can intervene more easily and more quickly 
when they're notified that there's uh, some, an issue, some an individual with an issue who may harm themselves or harm someone else. You know, one of the, I mean, the, 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 so much attention to these horrible tragedies in, in the schools, but in, in a great deal of gun violence is suicide. And so you can address this kind of an issue at the same time when you empower law enforcement to intervene when a family member says, hello, I've got somebody that, you know, in my family that there's an issue. Uh, or even a neighbor, that kind of thing. And we're going to intervene just to remind people they are listening to Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM, your home for community radio, one of three point five FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Guy Smith, Democratic candidate, or candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor, is running us down. So as we said, basically, you grew up in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. I did. Your grandfather ran the Knoxville Journal. He did. Newspapers. That's it's still right. around? They're still printing? No, sadly, it's, my grandfather passed many, many years ago, and the, the newspaper passed some years after Oh, no, that. you're kidding. Uh, so what's the paper in Knoxville now? It's called the Knoxville News Sentinel, which was the, the evening paper back when I was... Well, before yeah. the Knoxville Journal died, you, you wrote for it. I did. Was that, that college? Was, uh, my yeah. first job was a reporter, you know. City, and is that I, how you got to know uh, Bill Clinton? Uh, no, I got to know Bill Clinton. I worked for, um, early in my career, I worked for the 7-Up Company. Uh, and um, he had just been elected um, governor of Arkansas. And 7-Up was sponsoring an art show in Little Rock. And we invited the new governor to an event at the Little Rock Art Museum. He came. We got to know each other. Went to dinner after that. And have been very close friends ever since. What were you doing for 7-Up, Guy? I was uh, I was vice president of corporate affairs, uh-huh. kind of government affairs. And you were in your twenties or thirties? Uh, yeah, I was in my I was in my mid to late twenties, uh, I guess, maybe early thirties. That's a high job, but to get it, that it, age. Was, it was. I was the youngest, all that kind of. And now I'm the oldest, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, back then, the thing um, at Seven Up that that I was that I had personal involvement in, it used to be there were no 800 consumer phone numbers on containers of soft drinks or, frankly, of most other consumer products, food products and things. And 7-Up pioneered uh, putting an 800 number on the can or the bottle so that the consumer could ring up and ask a question. And, it, and we did that, and, um, and, and about eight, nine months later, Coke and Pepsi copied it. And today it's so... And then you dialed up Bill Clinton and you met him. And so you guys got to be buddies just from that one dinner? Well, no, we kept up with each other, and, you know, I... I he is famous for keeping up people. You became a note card. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. He didn't, he didn't do it that way. George Bush, George Walker Bush Sr. did note cards. Okay, uh, what, 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 did, what did Bill have? Because he had some famous way of memorizing thousands of people. He just talked to you. He, seriously. I mean, that's... That, and, you know, people say about Bill Clinton that, you know, I felt like I was the only person in the room that he was talking to. And the reason is because you were the only person in the room that he's talking to. That's one of the magic you think of. Did watch, you become buddies? Like, did you hang out on vacation with we him? Did, we did. We and, did. And, and Chelsea and my children uh, were, you know, it's little people at different events and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then fast forward to when he took office and uh, I was involved, you know, behind the scenes for a while. And then uh, when the impeachment thing came along, I, uh, became a member of his uh, staff. So what House. did you do during this? was over the Monica Lewinsky affair. What, what did you well, do during that? Well, it was that and, and, and all kinds of other things that the Republicans... The, Ken, the Star uh, Report, Ken Star yeah, Report. Yeah, Ken Star. And, and whether he committed perjury and is and all that. Right, yeah. yeah. So you're, what was your role, Guy? I did political and communication strategy and also did radio. I, I did radio shows with, you know, Rush and 
Oh, you went on Rush Limbaugh to talk about the Clinton affair? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? He must have said, oh, my God, I got my sitting duck here. Well, you know, it's interesting, and I did this for Hillary's campaign also. I was radio spokesman for Hillary's campaign. And I talked to, did a lot of uh, of radio, and I did a lot of conservative talk radio. And um, sometimes there were um, people that just wanted to scream and that kind of thing. And well, how did um, Rush Limbaugh treat you? It was good. Yeah, we've we've kind of laughed about it. He he's a, a sponsor of a of a big charity, a prost- men's prostate cancer thing, and he's a big supporter of that. And, and I've been involved in that, and and we've we've laughed about it but you know it's interesting going way back to when ollie north who i think still has a tv show he he had There's a radio a show test. and when we went on he would say to listeners and he didn't you know he didn't like bill clinton but he would say to his listeners anybody can ask any question they want but um if you um uh, if you're disrespectful then i'm gonna cut you off and a couple times he did most people were not disrespectful but but, so you know, what did you say? Like, how do you feel in retrospect now? Did you feel you were making excuse for horrible behavior, or did you feel the Republicans were just looking for a pretext to get a guy they couldn't beat on the merits on political issues? You know, the thing the thing we said then, and I will say again now, uh, what he did was was wrong and immoral and reprehensible, but it wasn't unconstitutional, and that was a distinction that the American people saw. And believed in at the time. Oh, backfire! And uh, and it did backfire. And actually, the day he was impeached, his approval rating went up eight points. And the Do you reason- think that would have been true now with the Me Too movement? Because now there's been a reassessment by a lot of former Clinton allies about the role that Bill Clinton played there, and about people who who defended him, especially feminists. They say now they defended that behavior and was on their side. None of them come forward and said we've reexamined that given. 2018 values and 2018 headlines well i mean you know everybody's certainly entitled to their point of view and their opinion and that sort of thing if you if you took if you did an analysis for things abraham lincoln said about black people in 1863 and and put them through a lens of today and and he would be considered a terrible racist and of course he was not and frank and delano roosevelt said anti-semitic things and he supported the liberation of jews from concentration but i mean you know what what i'm here today in new haven to talk to you about is the next governor of the state of connecticut and but this issue is back in the news because of me too people have re-examined i mean it's in the news but they didn't have it's not about the running for governor of connecticut right you know we can talk about that if you want but that's not what the people in this show are interested in they're interested in how's this clown that's talking to you right now going to fix the problems in the state of Connecticut. And, uh, and what I'm telling you is I'm not going to raise people taxes. I'm not going to make unions the enemy. We're going to bring jobs into this state, and we're going to work together. We're going to talk to each other. You know, people say all politicians say that. Yeah, but they don't do it. And I have a, I have a, a record in my, over the arc of my career of doing exactly that. You know, you One place you worked you mentioned was Medicare. You dealt with disaster relief and... Um, in Haiti, for instance, yeah, one me, day you were in Haiti. One day the a, I was on the first airplane that landed in Haiti. Uh, after what year was the earthquake? earthquake? It was 2010. It was in January 2010. And but let me go back a little uh, further. And this bears on bringing people together with people with vastly, vastly different views. It was the day of the ceasefire of Gulf War One. Uh, I was on an airplane, a cargo plane with 100,000 pounds of medicine, and we were trying to land in Oromia, Iran. Iran. That's, you know, yes, Iran, where the Ayatollah is. And they said, we're going to shoot down the plane, you come into our airspace. Well, 
we landed anyway, and we got 100,000 pounds to the Kurdish refugees in Iran. And then it was Ramadan, had dinner with six mullahs, and talked about how we can bring things together, how we can bring more medicine to them. And then <clears throat> when it was time to, for us to leave on our airplane that night, there were three captains in the Revolutionary Guard, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, who wanted to go home with the great Satan. Now, that's what we started with them wanting to shoot us down, and we ended with them, some of them wanting to come home with us. This is what I'm talking about. Yes, it's hard. Of course it's hard. But that's what you pay a governor or senior people in the legislature for. That's what the, the people listening to this show right now expect that. They, they, that is a minimum that you have to talk to people. And, and democracy, in, our democracy is based on compromise. The whole system of our government is based on compromise. Which there's not a whole lot of these days. There's none of it these did days. You, did you notice all the hearings this week in Hartford about Governor Malloy's Suggest selection for Chief Justice, State Supreme Court, Andrew McDonald. Yeah. We haven't seen a confirmation like that in Connecticut that so resembled D.C., where some people are claiming that Malloy shouldn't be able to pick a Chief Justice in his last term. Uh, they had been, I think it was a 30 to 3 vote originally in the state Senate to confirm this guy when he got to the Supreme Court. That might not be the exact number, but that was roughly those numbers and similar margin in the House. Um, what... Well, All I mean, sudden, this, they're is evenly being driven, divided. this is being driven. The Republicans are using their national playbook. It's driven by a lot of homophobia. It's driven by we don't want anybody that might be the, the, the least bit liberal that uh, that's in office. I mean, we've seen it play out at the national level, and sadly, it seems to be playing out in Harvard. Well, I guess what you seriously think, if you have a, a pro-death penalty Republican governor, he's going to be able to appoint a qualified justice who is pro-death penalty if you're an anti-death penalty liberal democrat governor if you're elected you're going to be able to nominate a qualified person who happens to be anti-death penalty it does seem like i am getting the sense that the death penalty and abortion seem to be maybe bigger factors here than this the fact that mcdonald's gay i could be wrong about that well, I mean, you may be right. The, I mean, I, it's, I, the, it's the, uh, it, it's but kind of are, all like, of what those do we do in our society in now about elections? When you win elections, I mean, are we still going to be able to appoint judges? I guess uh, Trump's successful, but he's got the Republican legislature to well, confirm it, him. It, it, I mean, it's all about how democracy works, and the way democracy works is, the, you know, the majority controls but does not rule. This is an important component of both the way the U.S. government works and the state of Connecticut works. Yes, there's a majority. In the House, it's Democrats in Connecticut. In Washington, it's Republicans kind of in everything. And what seems to be appalling is the Republicans are in charge of everything in Washington, and they're still screwing it up and can't even pass a law. And Guy Smith here in Connecticut, as we discussed before on the air, the Republicans have made a lot of gains. We've traditionally been a blue state. All our Congress members are blue. Um, we don't always elect blue governors, but uh, uh, Malloy was going the first this governor. Time, yeah. I'm going to win. So the Republicans have closed the gap in the Senate. It's tied, and they get Democrats to vote with them. They're closing the gap in the House. Polls were so strongly favoring Republicans for this governor's race that a lot of top Democrats or who people considered top Democrats, Kevin Limbo, Nancy Wyman, decided not to run. How do you see the landscape? Why do you think this could be a Democratic year? I think it's a Democratic year for a lot of reasons. One, if you talk to people in Connecticut, most of the people believe in the traditional, what we would call traditional Democratic values. And... Um, this is something that's that's critically important to people across our state. The other thing is that that the, and this is why my candidacy is 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 on the you know we're on the ascendancy. We're really feeling 
the love, frankly, from people because we're saying things that people uh, believe, and we're I'm given very specific things that we're going to do that are different, and how we're going to do them differently, and. Too many candidates, frankly, of both parties, but too many candidates just give pablum. They just say what the, um, what, the, what the political consultants say to say. Let me give you a very specific example. It was at a candidate forum the other night, and uh, two of the candidates before me, both of them said, I'm going to fight for organized labor. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I'm going to fight, but what if you, well, we lost. Too bad. Sorry. That's not enough, and it isn't good enough. I'm telling you very specifically, I will not abrogate the CPAC contract. I will not go back on the collective bargaining agreements that we've made. I will not do that. And I was on a radio show up in uh, Bloomfield the, uh, the other day, a conservative, kind of foxy, sort of that kind of thing. And three times, the one of the hosts kept saying, well, you know, I guess when you're governor, you're going to have to just... Uh, break this contract. And I kept saying, what is it about? No, you don't understand. I'm not going to do it that way. We don't have to do it that way. You know, Paul, I wrote a book called, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting. Well, I'll give you Connecticut's interesting, but that book is about how to achieve the impossible. And if you think about the kind of things that everybody over the years have said, oh, it's just, that's not possible. You just can't do that. Well, like, you know, you can't fly. Well, I mean, you know, and, or, you know, or you can't, electricity. If Edison had stopped on the 9,500th time he tried to make a light bulb, he, we still might not have light bulbs. But he figured out 10,000 ways to not make one, and then he figured out how to make it. So it became possible. It does, I'm not suggesting, and I'm not being silly here. I'm being very deadly serious. The only way to do this is to have people who are smart work together on things, and look for different ways to do things. That thing I was talking about, about the infrastructure bank and using the state of Connecticut's credit, that's not a new idea. That's been done in other states. You know, and you, t- you were talking about Washington and the kind of harm that's being caused to Connecticut, specifically designed to harm Connecticut, taking away little kids' insurance, taking away home heating assistance, you know, shutting down daycare centers. You know, 21% of our Environmental Protection Agency, our state Environmental Protection Agency, comes for the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. And what's happening there? They have, the guy they put in charge doesn't even believe in protecting the environment, doesn't believe in climate change. I mean, what is the matter with these people? And it matters here because if you think about what our Environmental Protection Agency does in Connecticut, it does things that are critically important to the Long Island Sound fisheries, to the oyster industry, the fishing industry, in addition to just having an environment that's not polluted. And, and here, one other thing, and, and this is really important for everybody on, on this show to listen to, the Trump Republicans want to put an oil well out in Long Island Sound. They actually want to do that. And not a single Republican officeholder in the state of Connecticut on a coastal town from Greenwich to Mystic has said who about it. Why not? I'd like to know. Why have they not spoken out about this? This is important, and it matters to Connecticut. And when I'm governor, we're not going to have this kind of stuff. I'm going to stand up to these clowns in Washington, and I'm going to work with our congressional delegation, who, as you noted correctly, are all members of the Democratic Party and do a fabulous job representing our state and protecting our state. And I'm going to make sure that the state government works even more closely with them. 
All right, and you're listening to Guy Smith telling us why he wants to get the Democratic <coughs> nomination for governor in Connecticut here on Dateline New Haven on WNHH, your home for community radio, 103.5 FM, live team, newhaven.org. Why would you want the job? You're 68 years old, you're a retired executive, you got nice friends to hang out with, you got family. Why would you want to put up with a dysfunctional political system where people aren't very nice to each other? It's harder to get things done. Because somebody needs to step up and lead. Right. And if, if there's somebody that is of strong will and strong mind, and I am, then you can you lead, people will follow, you can bring people into state government who just the same question that you just asked. You'd say to somebody, would you come work in state government and help make it better? And, and like, well, why would I want to subject myself to that? Because there are people who do care. There are lots of people that do care. And let me tell you what, they care about those little kids who are being harmed. They care about that old lady. They care about these things, and when you care and you get involved and you bring a fresh way to look at things, let me tell you another fresh way to look at things. Eversource, the big power company, they just got a 14% tax cut from the, that tax scam that passed in Congress. Well, the other day I called on Eversource to give everybody that's listening to this call a 14% rate cut. Mm -hmm. Now, here's, here's what this means. So you take the grandmother who looks after her grandchild so that her daughter can work the two jobs that she has to work in order to keep them above, above water. 14%, they pay $300 a month in electric bills. 14% of that adds up to about $40 to $45 a month. Times 12, that's enough for two car payments or enough clothes and books for that kid for an entire year. This matters. Eversource is not even headquartered in the state of Connecticut. It's publicly traded on Wall Street, which means that they're beholden to 23-year-old analysts and not to the people of Connecticut. When I'm governor, we're going to be looking at those kind of things, too, because it matters to people to people who are listening to this show right now. What about New Haven? What is talking about New Haven? What, do we, what does the state need to be New Haven is not doing now? I think it needs to keep doing what it's doing. Mayor Harp is doing a great job, and I think that... Uh, there's there's a lot of things that that uh, that the state government can do to be of assistance on that, and uh, one of the things that in particular is the way the state revenue for municipalities is distributed. Payments in lieu of taxes. Yeah, pilot. yeah. Well, there's that, and and, and then there's um, the and, and the formulas and the education. And, and one of the things that you know you of course. When you're talking to a small town that's in a rural area, they have a different, for obvious reasons, different perspective on how much money they should get from the state. One of the critical components of this is that that cities, big cities, become important economic anchors, other kinds of anchors too, academic and things like that, but particularly economic anchors for the broader community. And this is something that I think that, that, that Mayor Harp's done a really good job on. We need to continue. Remember a little earlier I was talking about the recruitment of uh, millennials and, and other folks into, and I said that they, we need to focus them into the urban areas. Now, a critical component of a functioning urban area is also transportation. Right, our buses and, are broken. Well, the buses are broken, the roads are broken, the bridges are about to fall down. So, you know, we got it. We got some heavy-duty stuff. So in New Haven, the support. So you got the Reverend Boise Kimber, who's an influential figure. He's supporting you. How did you guys link up? Uh, the Clinton organization. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's, how did tell me how that happened? Well, it happened because uh, President Clinton called him and before I went to see him and said, um, "This is a, this is a good guy. You know, you know, talk to him." And so did my friend Reverend Jesse Jackson, who I've worked with for many, many, many years. Got to know uh, got to know Reverend Jackson in the early '80s. And actually, in 1984, Reverend Jackson asked me to run his presidential campaign. Uh, and I joke with him that, you know, well, if I had, maybe he'd become president. <laughs> and uh, Reverend Al Sharpton is also a friend. We've worked together for not as long as with Reverend Jackson, but for, for a long time, and working with big corporations on their diversity programs and things like that. And uh, so um, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have been invited to uh, a, a number of churches, speak to the congregations and i find that incredibly rewarding so reverend kimber is getting you invitations to churches what's his role exactly in your campaign does he have a title or uh, well i guess we could give him a title he's a he's certainly an advisor and a, and a very important component of uh, and we've got a we've got a you know really solid campaign staff we've got my campaign manager is a woman named beth davis she grew up in clinton connecticut and um so we've got, you know, a good bit of diversity even in our own uh, in our own staff. So, Guy Smith, before we run out, I want to give you a lightning rod around here on some issues. Public finances. Are you running with public money? Are you going to self-finance this campaign? I'm not going to self. I'm not running with, I'm not doing the public financing. I certainly have no issue with the public financing program. And, um, and I don't have billions of personal dollars the way one of the other candidates on the D side has. But... We're going to raise money and have been very successful at raising money from people who believe in, in our cause. And well, why not saying. go with the public financing? Doesn't that get you more when you get the match? Yeah, it gets you. Well, I mean, I, look, I think with the kind of economic problems that this state has, and you articulated them, have articulated them through the course of this show and other shows, I, the people, the taxpayers of Connecticut don't need to be given money for me to run for office. People that believe in me are going to are already giving me money, and we're we're, we're happy with that. And uh, and I think uh, I think you know we're going to succeed. Um, would you call, you say the taxpayers should not have to pay? Would you curtail the no the, uh, no no? I say I don't program? have any any issue with the, the public finance program. I think it's it's fine. It's just not for me at this moment. Okay, what about single-payer health care? Do you support that? I do. I do support single-payer health care, but not by doing it on Tuesday of next week. Here's what I mean by that. Medicaid for all? Gradually. Well, we need to, we need to, we had a Obamacare, which wasn't perfect, but it made some guarantees for people, and then these Trump Republicans took it away. And they've, they've you know, we need to bring that back. We need to fix the components of it that weren't right, and there were a number of them that would that needed to be to be addressed. And then and then once you do that, then evolve to the single payer. And we're talking nationally, right? Because some people argue you could do it in one state. Vermont had trouble doing that. Other well, people suggest have, that maybe you could have a, a can blue have state programs. compact. You're right. You can have programs that uh, that that try to do a good bit of that in a state. And you know there was all. But this, others argue it's got to be national. Well, that's where healthcare decisions to do it, are made. To really do it properly, it does. People. And we're going to have a democratic wave in the midterms coming up. And the next time there's a presidential race, we're going to be rid of all this red hat silliness that's uh, causing so much harm to our country generally, and certainly to our our state here. And we'll get back to where we, you know, we'll have to catch up, but we'll get back to it. And I think we will get to specifically what you're talking Sanctuary about. Sanctuary State Policies, Guy Smith, would you continue the uh, program of not, uh, not providing detainers to secure communities that the state has? Would you, Donald, sorry, Donald, Donald Trump said he wants to defund 
Oh, state. sanctuary yeah, cities. I'm city, sorry, I didn't yeah. hear you. Um, I'm totally support sanctuary cities, sanctuary state. I think the, you know, the, the hatefulness that's coming out of, um, of Washington is directed towards our immigrant population. And unless you're a Native American, everybody that on this uh, show, that's listening to the show, is, is an immigrant in some form at some point in their history. And um, this country was built by immigrants, frankly. Marijuana, and would you legalize recreational use? I would. Uh, let me talk about marijuana for a minute. I'm in favor of recreational marijuana with only one proviso, and that proviso is that as soon as there is the an equivalent of an alcohol breathalyzer so that um, law enforcement has the ability to do a roadside impairment test. Now, I'm told that's only about a year away, so it's not like a pie-in-the-sky sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and here's what happened in Colorado. Colorado voted to have recreational marijuana. They have had a good bit of success with their regulation. They regulate it with the same organization that regulates alcohol in, uh, in Colorado. They have a lot of tax collections. have been successful at that. But what they have had is a big spike in impaired driving. And the law enforcement doesn't have a way like they do with uh, alcohol-impaired driving to do a roadside breathalyzer. It's much more complicated. Times had a story today about a study. They said it's not proven cause of effect, but the states that have legalized marijuana saw an increase in pedestrian deaths last year, whereas those deaths went down in other states, which was kind of interesting. I have not seen that, uh, but that doesn't change my view in terms of... uh, The uh, the other component of, uh, of marijuana for Connecticut... We do have medical marijuana in Connecticut, and my experience with just recently with a friend who had had some surgery, wasn't reacting well, and was like, frankly scared of the opioids in terms of painkiller. He tried to get uh, the medical marijuana, got the prescription, but the waiting period, that all the hoo-ha that you have to go through to get it. So what we need to do, and I think this can be done by regulation, but it may take legislation, is shorten and, 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 and make it simpler for someone to get medical marijuana because that will also help on the opioid crisis because there are certainly people that are abusing uh, the opioids right. for the wrong reason. But but what's happening is and there's the, the prescriptions that doctors are now skittish about giving to people who actually need the painkiller. And I think medical marijuana can be an important component of, of the, that finally, solution. Finally on lightning rounds, some Democrats, Guy Smith, are saying that we should raise marginal tax rates from 6.99 to 7.5% on incomes over a million dollars a year. Well, that you know, Democrats I, I are said divided I'm, I'm not raising taxes on, on anybody. Right. I'm not opposed to closing some loopholes in there. But, but you know, 30% of the revenue that comes into this state come from that 1%. That, so you know, I just don't want them to move to Florida. And they will. They already have a house in Florida. I don't want them to move because they'll quit paying taxes here like Paul Tudor Jones did. And if we do that, then we've dug our hole deeper. We can't do that. We need to bring more jobs, rich people, middle-class jobs, and we need to look after those who are the most vulnerable in our community. Guy Smith, it's been a real pleasure to hear your high-octane, passionate reasons for wanting to become the Democratic nominee for governor in 2018. Thanks for joining us Uh, today. Thanks for having me, and thank you, Connecticut. What's the biggest surprise so far in the campaign trail? The biggest surprise so far on the campaign trail is when I say Hartford people groan so much. And uh, the other is when I say I'm not going to raise their taxes, they sit up straight in the chair and smile. That's, and this, I mean, we, I know from talking to people, this matters to people. It really matters. And we can do this. 
Right. Well, we can thank you again for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening to WNHH. We're going to take it out, the Afro-Semitic experience, performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.